and welcome to another episode of Associated Podcast. I'm Julia, and I'm so excited to be hosting today's episode. My voice might sound a little bit different, and that's because this is the first time I'm hosting. And today we're joined by the awesome Lois. Hi, Lois. Hey, Julia. Very excited for your first episode. You all right? Yeah, I couldn't wait to get behind the microphone, and now I can't stop smiling. And so how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. I took some time off and it was really hot and sunny in the UK and I felt great and I'm back to work and it's raining. I did a literature degree. It's very pathetic fallacy. Well, I'm glad that you had a good vacation at least. I know. Thank you. Where are you? Oh yeah. So I'm in the US. I'm in New Jersey. Normally I'm based in Madrid, Spain, but right now I'm just spending some time with family over the summer. Cool. So this is a cool segue to introduce our latest guest. We're all three in different time zones. Today, we have Sean Han, Director of Rainmaking Transport and Southeast Asia's first corporate venture builder for the maritime industry. Hi, Sean. Welcome, Sean. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. So Sean is passionate about spearheading maritime innovation in Asia, and this is by bridging the region's seafaring legacy with the new technology frontiers. Sean, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm all the way in the other side of the world in Singapore. Wow. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? I'd love to. I lead investments and new venture bill activities with our corporate partners in rainmaking. And my specific focus, like you rightly pointed out, is in the transport space, where I try to drive AI and digital adoption in the industry. So solving some of the most pressing issues we believe the industry is facing all the way from decarbonization to supply chain resilience. My background, I've always been innovating in the transport space as an engineer. I set out my career in London, building predictive models with an electric vehicle company for larger corporates like Amazon, BMW, and Ford. And as an engineer, I was very pigeonholed to solve one part of supply chain in transport. And I wanted a more macro front on maritime. So the VC space allowed me to get a front row seat to see what's happening. I get to see multiple products being built and developed at the same time. So I subsequently moved from London to Singapore to join a VC where I led investments in the AI deep tech space. The other push into VC is I come from a very finance oriented background. My family members are all in the finance space, whether in audit or banking. And that drives a lot of my interest in finance. At the same time, coming from an engineering background, I'm very passionate about it. So VC is, to me, the marriage between finance and engineering. That's so cool. Did it feel a bit like coming home? Like, did you rebel and do an engineering degree, but eventually finance just got its claws in you and brought you back where you belong? I think that's what my mom tells me. I think that's, uh, that's her win. <laughs> That's so cool. And when you made the change from engineering in London to BC in Singapore, I'm curious about what drove the geographic change. You were doing kind of engineering stuff in London and then you moved to Singapore to do VC. What was behind that move? So I think there are a few factors here. The first factor is definitely family, right? Because my parents and my family, they're in Malaysia and Singapore is a natural choice to be. The second driving factor is I was looking at countries that were growing and I think are growing the next five, 10, 15 years. And I think it came down to Asia. And in my perspective, I had two choices. One was Singapore and one was China. Both are forefront in technology. 
and Singapore being closer to Malaysia was my first pick into coming back here. So that's the rationale behind the geography. And what would you say was the drive to move into the VC space? Yeah, my observation is that as we move towards a more tech-centric venture space, I think there's not enough VC practitioners that really understand how technology works in this part of the world and this part of the world being Southeast Asia. I think as technology becomes more cutting edge, we'll see a larger influx of engineers coming into the VC space. And this has already happened in places like the US, right? We have Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz, they were both uh, builders of technical products. Um, they did it firsthand. And I don't think we've seen that in the region yet. So that's a lot of my gateway into the VC space here. People are starting to do investments into technology and deep tech. And I was one of the few engineers with that sort of background and experience building that products. That's how I really got into it. Yeah, that's a great background for entering VC. And for our listeners, you heard it here first. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the space over the next five, 10 years, as you mentioned, Sean. So what were some of the interesting tech startups that you saw while you were a VC? And how do you think that your engineering background helped you see them from a different point of view? Great question. I think one of the most interesting startup I saw last year is an autonomous robots company. And what it does is that it has a fleet management system to control robots at scale. And this is used in factory floors. And I think what's great about it for these kind of technology, it's not the hardware play anymore. It's a move towards leading via software. So what it really means is that if this company wants to go forward and really scale this, what they can do is move towards a software as a service model and apply that not just in robotics, but outside of robotics. And so I think we're starting to see more horizontalization due to technology. Very interesting. And how did you start to get into venture building? So my journey into venture building is a search to find more consistent ways to add values into new ventures or startups, really. So in other words, how can I make innovation more predictable? So the value add for venture capital is naturally the capital component. Venture capitalists can deploy a huge amount of capital and can deploy it really quickly. However, the question is once a venture capitalist invested into the startup, can they continue to help grow these companies and continue adding value? Or are these startups going to grow regardless of these venture capitalists? So I think venture capital is that 1.0 model. I think venture building is the 2.0 model where venture builders bring in capabilities to build a venture. It brings in the product development expertise for new ventures to leverage off. And I think this is a slightly better predictable driver of innovation. And the next step once you've built a product is where more startups get stuck is the product market fit. A lot of time startups spend most of their life really trying to find a fit. And unless that fit is found, it's difficult for a startup to take off. So my interest moving into the venture building space is short circuiting that process as much as possible. And this is where I think the 3.0 model comes in using corporates as an unfair advantage. Corporates have a large amount of assets that allow startups to quickly test against, to iterate and find that product market fit. And this is my journey, just trying to drive more value into the venture space, making it more predictable with the 3.0 model, which is venture capital, 
venture building capabilities and corporate assets. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. That evolution from a 1.0 VC model to a 3.0 corporate venture building model. So why don't you tell us a little bit about more of your day-to-day, maybe some of the skills that you've brought in from VC or from being an engineer into venture building and what you're doing. My day-to-day has been fortunately very interesting. I don't think I've had too many same days. The scope has changed whilst I was a VC, where I was very focused on finding competitive deal flows, getting into competitive deals, to trying to add value on the board from board perspective. In the venture building context, I work with founders on an operational level to try to strategize sequentially what they should be doing and how they should be building it. And on the other end of the table with the corporate, we sit in scoping sessions together just to understand some of the burning problems they're facing and are looking to solve and where can we infuse more technology to move the needle. And so I think that's kind of where the slight difference is. So it's like change moving from a VC perspective where it's very investment focused to the venture building space where it's more problem focused and also more operationally focused. Awesome. And so what have been some of the challenges for you as you're entering into venture building? Because it is kind of a new business model. As you mentioned, it's this 3.0 model. What has been difficult for you and how do you feel like you're overcoming that? The difficult part about building any ventures, I believe there's no blueprint for success. What I realized is that it's not a linear process where if you do X, you get Y. It's a very complex system where if you have multiple inputs into the system, you might have more outputs than inputs out of the system. And so I think that's the first part. The second part is the stakeholders that we're working with, whether they're founders or corporates or clients, they also have to have this mindset that things can go forward and then backward again and then forward again. And I think it's important not to lose too much enthusiasm on the roller coaster ride. Now, I think more specifically pertaining to corporate venture building, the challenge is deconflicting that personal interest. So being aware that the deal you're making on the other end of the table, that person might not necessarily have full skin the game. So understanding that person's incentives and interests, whether long or short term, it's important to make sure that the venture that we're all building together works. I think the concept of skin in the game and how that differs in different relationships is really interesting, particularly in the context of the different roles that you've had. So you have worked in VC and you understand how that relationship works. What do you think some of the main differences are both for investors, but also for founders, for entrepreneurs? in those relationships, particularly with regards to skin in the game and aligned incentives? And do you have any thoughts on how those two processes might differ in their attractiveness to different kinds of people? So I think from a venture capital perspective, skin the game is a little bit different from skin the game for venture building. So I think for the audience that are listening, I don't know how familiar they are with venture capital. So you raise the fund and it usually has a 10 year life. From that 10-year life, you draw a 2% management fees from that fund and you get a 20% upside on the performance. Now, for a lot of fund managers, or for most fund managers, really, 
you draw that 2% regardless of the performance of the fund. And your investment period is for three, four, five years where you would probably finish deploying that money way before the fund life is up. So then the next thing the fund manager is incentivized to do is encourage startups to grow really quickly so that they can show good traction on a portfolio level to raise a bigger second fund. Because I think that when they have the 2% from the bigger fund, they can theoretically do more. They can run better operations, right? So I think that's an incentives, skin the game perspective from a VC perspective. For a founder, I think it's important to realize what kind of business that you want to build because if your incentives are not aligned with a VC, which is to grow really quickly, which is to expand really quickly with capital, show the kind of traction that's exciting for series A or B, you might not be suitable for venture capital. There are other form of instruments available to bridge that financing rounds that you need. And do you think that's a function of risk appetite? Do you think there's something in, if you're venture building and you're doing that in conjunction with, let's say, a corporate that would give your startup advantages in the market that you're looking to enter, essentially is the, the sell of that is that it de-risks things, right? And I'm interested in the risk reward mentality of that and founders who are interested in enormously outsized rewards and also willing to take on that risk. I think there may be an element that's true there. I think I can speak for only the space I'm in, which is very much the B2B space. And I think for B2B companies, you really don't expect an enormous outsized returns only because past a certain point, a billion dollar, realistically not expecting a lot of people to acquire you. So then your route to exit becomes quite narrowed. A lot of these founders that we want to work with or that we're working with, you know, we're targeting a few hundred million dollar valuation exit. And that's through an acquisition by some of our corporate partners that are interested in acquiring these ventures as a new business unit. I think there's a point, maybe an element where you're right in the sense that the risk reward profiles are different. And I think if you're looking for that billion dollar company, super amazing profile out there, I think the B2C route might be the way and venture capital to expand really quickly might be the way. And in terms of how you go about finding those people for venture build activities, what's that process like for you? So we're, we're really lucky because we're focusing on a niche industry, which is maritime. And because all our connections are within the maritime space, when we market to these entrepreneurs, we get very targeted response from them. And it helps that we have developed an ecosystem of partners, whether the Singapore government, whether our corporate partners, Marketing these jobs or availability and sourcing and recruiting is, I think, a lot easier and more targeted than most other industries if we were not focused. And how about in general, as a founder, somebody who wants to start their own business or initiative, considering what you mentioned about 
how risky it could be to start your own business versus maybe starting it in a corporate venture builder. What do you think are the different profiles for founders that you look for? So founders profile that we hire, I think are of very similar values to once in rainmaking, to be honest. But I think more specifically, the founders that we look for, if we have to lay them out, it's largely people that understand technology. A lot of times what's really important here is that they have an understanding of how to work with corporates. Because I think that corporate experience is super important to relationship manage. So unless you have that experience, I think it's super difficult to be a founder in a corporate venture builder. Did you have any experiences yet when it was difficult to manage that relationship between a founder and the corporate? Yeah, I think it's really fortunate because I had the chance to work with some of the bigger corporates when I was an engineer like Amazon, BMW, Ford, and Shell, for example. And I think you kind of learn how the structure is internally. And ultimately, if you didn't have the sort of experience, I think having a lot of empathy helps because it's understanding that the person that you're dealing on the other side of the table is a person and you have to be able to step in his shoes or her shoes to understand that sort of different personal motivation and interest. And not everyone revolves around the venture we're building. That the person on the other end of the table is probably thinking about his promotion or his work-life balance or all the things that I don't actually go through. And having that empathy, I think helps a lot in navigating these relationships. Actually, I would love to unpack that a little bit more because I think that's a really great point. It's also something that I see in corporate innovation, this part about empathy. So we're saying that empathy is pretty important. What other traits do you think are important to work in this space? What kind of do you see as like keys to success? I think not a lot of people objectively measure adversity. And I don't know if that's a really good way to measure adversity. But I think ultimately what a venture is or the venture journey is, it's you're going to build a lot of products and you're going to go out there and test it. And chances of you succeeding is pretty slim or the chances of you getting it right on the first try is pretty slim. So then you have to be really comfortable getting punched in the face, uh, which is getting rejected ultimately. And take that away, go and build a better product that brings value to your clients and iterate from there. And I think that ultimately is adversity. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. To understand a little bit of the mechanics behind venture building, is the whole concept that you as Rainmaking work with a corporate and then later on, let your baby fly away, that then you hire others to come in and continue to run it. How does that work? Yeah, so I think we largely start from a problem statement perspective. What's an interesting problem to solve? And then try to recruit a team to solve that together. And as we're designing this venture, to your point, we try to make it as externally competitive as possible. So what we don't want to end up with is a venture that can only be used or taken within the corporate innovation space. What we really wanted to build is a venture that's competitive such that if this venture needed financing around in series A, it can go out and compete with startups in the wild 
to be equally as competitive, not more, from a venture point of view? I think that's a creative way to put it. Startups in the wild versus homegrown startups in venture building. Startups in the wild <laughs> versus homegrown startups in venture building. So what would you think that people who are interested in VC, what are some of the elements in venture building that they might be interested in? Or even as a founder, what would they be interested in in the venture building space? This probably varies quite a lot from person to a person. I think if you're looking at the VC role, it's important to understand what you're really going after. I think there are certainly similarities, but I, otherwise I think there's a lot of disparities, right? So I think people who are really interested in solving problem, what is a problem statement, venture building is very interesting because that's where you're starting from. With venture capital, it's not that there's no problem statement. It's just a lot of the times you are extremely mission driven. Like I want to change the world in X and it can be a super top down view of the landscape. So I think if you want to go in as an analyst, I think that's what I would kind of think about which angle you want to approach from. As a founder, I think it's the difference between an entrepreneur and, and an entrepreneur. It doesn't mean that you don't have a vision if you join a venture building space. I think what it really means is that what do you want to do? Where do you want to spend your focus on? And venture building provides you with a lot of that support that you don't have to worry about because we use our studio capabilities in-house to help you. And so then all you do is actually try to build your vision of this product that solves the problem for your first client, which is the corporate that you work with. What kind of people, Sean, is the venture building entrepreneur in residence kind of role available to? Because I think we have people who aspire to get into VC. We also have people who are interested in becoming founders who listen to this podcast. But my sense about venture building has always been that the entrepreneur roles that they recruit tend to be for very, very experienced people who've done this kind of thing before. Is that true? Yeah. So I think that in our case, we recruit people with a little bit more experience only because the landscape we think is a little bit more difficult to navigate. And managing stakeholders in this industry where people are slightly older and more experienced, it's an advantage for more mature entrepreneurs to come in to solve that. But that doesn't mean that there's no room for younger entrepreneurs with not as much industry domain expertise. There are other venture builders that start from a blank sheet of paper, like Endler, for example, or Entrepreneur First. I think those people do a great job. And I think it's what kind of position you're in that will impact the decision you make on which venture bill firm go into. And what are some of the differences in the approach that Ryan making takes to venture building versus some of the other models out there? I think the biggest difference is we have a corporate partner. We haven't seen a lot of players that do that. There are definitely some, but we work with corporate partners and we have full skin in the game with our founders. And I think that's a rare, that's a new hypothesis almost. And ultimately we're trying to mitigate those risks as much as possible, but it's something new that we're also trying. And actually, could you give us a little bit of an overview of what the venture building ecosystem looks like? 
is it still a growing industry? Is it pretty big in certain areas like Singapore or in certain European countries or the U.S.? Just to give us a better idea of what's already going on out there. I think it's getting more and more popular. I think there are started all the way back maybe 10 plus years ago with Rocket Internet and Raymaking was closely after. To this day and age, you see Entler, Entrepreneur First, in Singapore, you see quite a few of them. Even BCG Digital Ventures, um, in some sense, consider themselves as venture building. So I, I can't comment on the specific work that they do, but I think the competition or rather the diversity in the ecosystem is complementary because everyone's almost trying out a different business model, whether it's part equity, no equity, whether it's corporate, no corporate, whether it's a different way of streaming entrepreneurs. So I think it'll be interesting to see which model really drives innovation here. I think it's pretty great that you mentioned BCG Digital Ventures, because in an earlier season, we actually had an investor architect, Bastian, from BCG. So shout out to him. <laughs> Definitely. And so it's really interesting that you guys are working on this kind of corporate model. Where do you think that Rainmaking wants to develop this model? Or they're kind of just still at the initial phases of testing this model? I'm really excited about this. So I think we've got an interesting startup we're building with our partner in the work. We're expecting to announce it a little bit later on. And I really hope to build more with our current partners and also really to see more corporate partners coming in to build startups openly, like an open innovation. I think where I would like to see this develop, I think it would be super incredible if a consortium of industry movers came together to build a startup. Because if industry movers came together to build and back that technology, adoption of these technology becomes a lot easier. And I think here a good analogy would be a house party analogy. So if you're starting a house party and if you're gonna throw a house party, make sure you get the buy-in of the cool kid. If the cool kid comes to your house party, the rest of the party usually works itself out. And I think this is funny enough, true in the space that we're in, we need these big movers to make this house party happen. And that's the direction we're moving in with Raymaking Transport. For a minute there, I thought you meant house party, the app. And I was like, you mean anyone can join whenever they want, <laughs> which is not quite what you were saying. I thought that too at first. <laughs> actual house party, actual house party. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, much cooler, much cooler. I've been listening to too many VC podcasts. <laughs> So time for question time. This is the point of the podcast where, Sean, we're going to ask you a couple questions. We want you to answer as quickly as possible. So let's see how it goes. Sean, work from home or office? Work from home. Morning or evening person? Evening, very late at night. <laughs> no hesitation. This is real quick fire. Also, to give our listeners an idea, I'm in the United States. For me, it's 11.30 in the morning. For Lois, I guess it's 4.30 in the afternoon. Right. And for Sean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's 11.30 p.m. It's, oh. it's when the magic happens. It's definitely night guy. Okay. Uh, and last question time. Who's your favorite role model? Ray Dalio. Ooh. Want to expand on that a little? Yeah, I'd love to. 
I read his book, Principles, that came out a couple of years ago, and it's changed the way I view my life, my work, my relationships. And what he teaches is if you make a mistake or if you have guiding principles to help you, when you make a mistake, you can kind of tweak that and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And if you make a mistake and there's no guiding principle, you can set one in to make sure that it kind of not happens as much as possible. And I guess the more concrete example is if I don't get enough sleep and I wake up really groggy, what my principle should be is I should get seven hours of sleep every night and I should adhere to that as much as possible. It's not a rule. It's just an idea or framework for you to live by. And I think that's profoundly changed the way I view my life and also live. Um, I was going to ask you a little bit about hiring and how much hiring you do at Rainmaking, whether you're hiring at the moment. We are, we are. So most of our jobs are on our website and you'll find most of the details there. As a firm, we take our cultures very seriously. And by culture, I mean having a shared sense of value. So value to us is important because it's the deep-seated beliefs that motivates behavior and determines people's compatibilities. So for example, some of the values that we practice in Raymaking is being kind to one another, listening well to another, apply the 80-20 rule for large impact, be entrepreneurial about the problems you're facing and how you go about solving them. So that's what we're looking for in Raymaking. And I understand that some of your listeners or audience maybe looking to break into the VC space or looking to get a job elsewhere. And on that point, I think for those people that are in the market, first of all, what I would say is really just be kind to yourself. It's a tough market out there. Unemployment rates are super high globally. Don't beat yourself up. The second point I'd probably think about is how would I as an individual create more optionality for myself? So the more options that I have, and the more options that you have, the more leverage you have as, as an individual. And the framework I use is that if I was a startup with equity value, how do I increase that valuation? So I start viewing myself like a product. What features do I need? What skills do I need? And depending on the job I'm looking for, I would probably find very different answers. And then over here, you can kind of apply the lean startup method. You can try that sort of hypothesis that you have. Is this feature or skill something that someone cares about? Do people really want it? And keep working on improving myself and yourself. And I think no doubt you'll get an offer and go to the place that you want to go with time. And if I was to give my younger self advice on looking for a job, I think what I didn't do very well when I was younger looking back, what I would advise is just be brave, get rejected, whether it's a job or a relationship, because getting punched in the face and by being punched in the face, I really mean rejection. There's no faster way to learn and grow. And I think until you learn and grow to bring more value to people, it's difficult to move out of this current situation. So that's my few thoughts on hiring and remaking and looking for a job. That's perfect. Thank you so much. I think there were a lot of pearls of wisdom within that. And particularly the fear of failure point really resonates with me. I've seen a few things recently about people who come and guest on this podcast and even ourselves, we talk a lot about there being an opportunity to get in touch with people. You can DM people on Twitter. You can 
cold email you can outreach there really is all of this freedom and flexibility now to just get out there and contact people and I think maybe what we don't talk about so much is that even those opportunities sort of self-select for people with the confidence to do that and who aren't afraid of failure and I'm perfectly happy to admit that I've done similar things I've thought about DMing someone or responding on Twitter to someone who I really admire and I've stopped myself because I've been like oh what if it doesn't work what if they don't like me what if they don't think it's interesting all of those things and I think you make a great point don't be afraid of that fear of failure the worst that can happen is not that bad it'll be fine and even if it doesn't work out the way you want it there will be so many other opportunities that you can try again at. also just to add to this I think it's a really good point that we do have LinkedIn in our day and age and I was just yesterday speaking with a good friend of mine who's moving from academia she's getting her PhD to industry and so that's why I definitely just wanted to mention this in case anybody's transitioning their careers that LinkedIn is a really great tool it's not a job finder it's a people finder and it's a really great tool to network and just kind of being on there and reaching out to people to made it a little bit easier than ever. And I think especially with coronavirus, I think we might've mentioned this on an earlier podcast, but how people are just a lot more receptive to other people reaching out to them now, since so many things are online. Be fearless. <laughs> Be fearless, absolutely. And Sean, if people wanted to reach out to you who are listening, where could they find you? Best way to find me is on LinkedIn. So Sean on LinkedIn. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I think that brings us to a close. So thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you spending some time with us and explaining a bit more about venture building, particularly in the maritime industry and kind of how you got there from VC. I think this has been a good episode. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sean, for everything. This has been a really great time just getting to know you, getting to know the work that you're doing with Rainmaking. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's episode. Follow us on Twitter at associated underscore pod, or feel free to reach out to us via LinkedIn or email. That would be associatedpodcast at gmail.com. And also don't forget to check out our Notion page where we have a lot of great content for both founders and VCs. So thank you so much. Bye.